This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. Good evening. Hello. Hi to you both. Hello. A whole new crew. You've got the good looking ones this week. (laughs) You know. Ouch. We can say this because it's radio and no one can judge. (laughs) Very good. I. Yeah, I, I, I auditioned Josh and Alex last week, and now it's your nah, turn, so nah. yeah. Yeah, they didn't cut it. <laughs> hey, on tonight's show, we'll be discussing gender politics on and off the tennis court in Battle of the Sexes. Plus, we're going to take a look at the 1963 French crime thriller Le Doulot, which will soon be screening as part of a retrospective season uh, all about the legendary French actor Jean-Paul Belmondo. But first... Beatrice at Dinner is the new Australian-Canadian independent... Sorry, it's an American-Canadian independent film by director Miguel Arteta and writer Mike White. Uh, They've previously collaborated on uh, the acclaimed independent films from the early 2000s, Chuck and Buck and The Good Girl. Now, the Beatrice of the title is played by Salma Hayek, Hayek, a woman originally from Mexico who now lives in Los Angeles where she works as a masseuse and healer at a cancer clinic. Uh, She also um, serves private clients and it's during an appointment with one such client, a particularly wealthy one, uh, where she's left stranded after her car breaks down uh, so she's invited to stay for dinner. The dinner is to celebrate a recent business triumph and one of the guests, played by John Lithgow, is an outspoken capitalist who specialises in hotels and proudly boasts about things such as his hunting expeditions. During the evening here and beat he and Beatrice increasingly lock horns, creating a lot of awkwardness. This was filmed in the lead-up to last year's US election, and uh, John Lithgow's character, Douglas Strutt, I think bears more than a parceling and deliberate resemblance to Donald Trump. So what did we think mm. of Beatrice mm. at dinner? The resemblance is definitely there. It would almost been part of the promotion of the film, hasn't it? So there's been yeah. talk about this being the first post-Trump film. Yeah, and there are certain exchanges between him and uh, Salma Hayek's Beatrice that are are very resonant with various of um, Trump's platforms leading up to that election. Not least because her character is Mexican, and uh, there is a he he actually grills her at one point about whether she came to the country legally. Yes, just just making conversation as you do. Yes, and um, yeah. uh, I had quite a few issues, actually, with this this film. I, I, I thought, I mean, one of the ones I'd like to be able to talk about would feel, would feel like a right rotter to do so would actually be the ending, so I won't come to that yet. Yes, I think so it's a I, rubbish ending. I'd, I'd like to circle around the ending yeah. as well, but mm. we, we can't spoil it, of course. Yes. No, though it spoils itself, if you know what I mean. It's a <laughs> rubbish ending. Anyway. Um, uh, I'm glad to hear you all say that because yeah. I felt like that as well and I wasn't sure. It just didn't sit well with me. I didn't feel like it was leading. It wasn't, you know... It wasn't providing any uh, strong, comfortable resolution. It didn't seem to be saying anything. Well, we almost get three endings. We get a a, a false ending, which Mm -hmm. uh, I think is rubbish. Then we get an ambiguous ending that you could read in two ways, and I think both those readings are rubbish. Yep. (laughs) And to be honest, though, I'm not too sure how on earth you could have resolved this film so that it was satisfying and so that it meant something. 
The, well, the whole thing seemed mm. extremely stagey to me in the first place. It didn't seem much like a film at all, really. It barely seemed to have any directorial imprint on it. I mean, everyone mm. acted in a nice actorly way, but this was a play. Yes, yeah. And um, I could see that. You yeah, could see I, it playing out like I that. I really yeah. felt I was watching a play, which mm. is fine. I don't mind plays, I, though I would rather see them in a theatre than in a, a cinema with people who are living and breathing in front of me performing than seeing them sort of embalmed on film, which is usually something I actually really like, that whole business of people being uh, captured by film and uh, for posterity and ageless. Well, we talked about It's Only the End of the World on last week's show. I don't know if you got to listen mm-hmm. back, but the Xavier Dolan film, which was an adaptation of a theatre, of, of a stage play, and it really feels like a stage play as well, and yet it's masterful. Oh, it's dynamic. It is, you've seen it? Yeah, Sorry? I did. Yeah, I saw it's, that it's, um, some months ago, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an extraordinary film, and it uses very... S- cinemagraphic techniques such as the, the, the close-up in particular yes. to really, even though you're very aware this is clearly an ensemble piece written for the stage, it feels very cinematic, where this is the opposite. This this is written for the screen. But yeah, I, I, I agree. It felt like a small kind of... It, it felt like the kind of thing MTC would have done. It felt like something David Williamson may have been commissioned to yes. do and he would have written yeah. it in two months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it... it, it I, I, I didn't hate the film. It's just that everything was quite banal. Um, mm, mm. I mean, I actually liked the, the cast, and there are two two members of the Transparent cast that I'm very familiar with. One of the few TV shows I've really watched in recent years is Transparent, and I'm accustomed to seeing whichever Duplass it is. And, uh, Jay Duplass, yeah. Oh, and yeah. Uh, I forget the, the woman's name who plays the eldest sister in Transparent. But, is it um, Amy Landecker? Yes, it would be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I immediately associate them with feelings of discomfort because that show is... Cringe mm-hmm. dra- dramedy, cringe dramedy. I think that's what that is. And um, it, they made me cringe in this as well. But somehow, even the cringiness of their cringe-worthy behaviour didn't quite cut it either. It's just this, this film just underperformed. I thought on every level, I expected it to perform on. I, I think that um, it, it, on a plus note for the film, I do think Selma Hayek was very good in her her performance, and I think that. If anything, her performance sold the end without saying anything. There's something about that her character right from the start had this feeling of being spent and exhausted. And um, so you, you, you kind of come to this, this uh, or she ends up not wanting to be at this dinner party, but ends up being there and it's the straw that breaks the camel's back as such. Um, she presented that weariness really well and I enjoyed that. And I like the way that it didn't make her, even though she was um, a holistic healer and she's a person of energy and so forth, that she um, she had a glass of wine and she went, hell, I'll have another glass of wine. And they kind of created, they didn't make her too one-dimensional di- one in that way. And then they kind of showed that that's what encouraged her to speak up more across the night as well. But it, it played, I did, I did enjoy the blurring of, because um, I felt um, I could feel I, I've, I think I've been in her position in parties and I think I've been in the other position as well. Not that I say I'm not the John Lithgow character, definitely not, but that idea of um, having some sort of uh, cultural privilege at a party and, and feeling uncomfortable because I've always I felt like I've been patronising in everything I've said and I, I, I can't kind of back myself out of that. And then even being, yeah, on the flip side, and I like the way that they didn't paint, except for John Lithgow's character, and he did do that, John Lithgow's Trump, he did do that very well, that they didn't... Um 
paint the other uh, characters in quite so broader brushstrokes. It was, it, it sort of teetered. I mean, that's not a new thing in film. It's something that's played out a lot and it is played out in the writing um, more than anything. Um, but it, it kind of was telling where, um, you know, you have the Connie Britton character who is the wife who invites her, says, your car's broken down, stay the night, who... Um, He's is, quite a sympathetic character. Who, who is, mm. but she's, like, absolutely appalled to hear that um, Selma Hayek's Beatrice's goat has been killed by someone. And it really... And she's really, really sympathetic, yet you have Lithgow presenting uh, these photographs of, uh, you know, wild animals that he shot. And that, that seems to be okay to her. Like, she doesn't react in the same way. And then at one stage, her husband says uh, to uh, Selma Hayek, she thinks sees you at, like you are a friend, and that choice of words was, I think, really perfect. Because she didn't, he didn't say you, she sees you as a friend. She sees you like you are a friend. Mm. So showing that there's always that difference, and even even the setting of the house that it was a Mexican hacienda style. So it was kind of that you know the fact that she was Mexican and they've kind of created this grand Mexican home, yet she is not at home there at all. I mean, there was plenty of nice details in this film, and, and I think even John Lithgow isn't overplayed and monstrous either. I think mm. even for the kind of character he is, there was some degree of restraint. In fact, I read one review that said even John Lithgow in this film is more palatable than the real Trump. Um, and, and I like the way it captured that dynamic of a very charismatic person like Lithgow's character being in this social situation and people kind of fawning beneath him mm-hmm. and complicitly nodding with everything he says and and the Beatrice character does make them start to question why do we unthinkingly listen to this rich, powerful man who has these fairly obnoxious views but it's too difficult to challenge him. And I think mm. that's a situation I identified with, being in a social situation and somebody, whether it's the patriarch of a family unit or yeah. uh, somebody famous or somebody wealthy or just someone with a big personality holding forward and they start to say and do things that you do not feel good about, but the yeah. situation makes you feel incredibly awkward to speak up. Well, feeling feeling like her, what I what I related to was that idea of being the guest in someone's house, yeah, and negotiating that, you know, that and that feeling that she's she's aside, but um, going, I am the guest here. How do I insult another guest that is, you know, the, you know, part of the family or invited by the family that have been have been so kind to me because my car has, you know, so it it, it was nice that play and I think you know her as that sort of exhausted spent character it kind of gave it another level with um the because she had healed the daughter or she'd been she'd been instrumental in Connie Britton's the 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 couple who uh, were hosting the party their daughter's cancer treatment and getting her through the cancer treatment and that's where they were so grateful for her and you could see that she it was like they had and everyone else had sapped her energy and she was just totally spent. At one stage, she's, she talks to someone on the phone and says, I feel fat, I feel tired, you know, and she's... Uh, it, it, I think that, that sort of nuance worked really nicely in the film. I think... Uh- I think I just wanted some more sparks from it and it just did mm. peter out. There was nowhere for it to go. I wanted something like The Exterminating Angel or I wanted mm. I wanted someone like John Waters to direct it where they start stabbing each other. You know, I wanted a bit of, yeah, maybe Peter Greenaway's dynamic to happen. It, it was just, I think, for the kind of level of satire I think the film was pitching itself at, it ultimately was just a little bit too polite yeah. and restrained. It was tepid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It just didn't, didn't have... Didn't, um 
didn't at any point really make any blows that that were, I could feel. I didn't. I didn't. Um, I wanted someone to strike out. It, it could be verbally. It didn't have. To, wouldn't have to be with knife play or, <laughs> or gunplay <laughs> or. I could have gone in so many different yeah. directions, really. But, yeah, I mean, we're not the writer. That's up to the writer's yeah, imagination. But, but it could. It could have gone so many. It never places. became as uncomfortable viewing as it should have. No. It, 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 yeah, I, I never really squirmed. Yeah. I yeah. Did, yeah. I. It was I, more like being hit by a sort of, you know, warm lettuce. Isn't that a Paul Keaton yeah, quote? Something like that. I think it is. Flogged, yes. flogged with, a, flogged, uh, with yeah. um, a, a limp lettuce or something like that. <laughs> We've been discussing Beatrice at dinner. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Battle of the Sexes is the new film by directors Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris, who previously directed Little Miss Sunshine in 2006 and Ruby Sparks in 2012. It's a um, dramatisation of the events le- leading up to the 1973 exhibition tennis match between 55-year-old former men's tennis champion Bobby Riggs and the, at the time, uh, women's tennis champion 29-year-old Billie Jean King. The film is not to be confused with the 2013 documentary of the same name that was also about this match and it also explored the gender and sexual politics surrounding the event. In this film, Emma Stone plays Billie Jean King and Steve Carell plays Bobby Riggs and some of the rest of the cast includes Sarah Silverman, Bill Pullman, Alan Cumming, Elizabeth Shue and Fred Armisen. It's a surprisingly cameo cast, actually. Alan is... Cumming is Alan Cumming. <laughs> yeah, he, was... he nailed it. Yeah. yeah he he, he played very... himself very well. Yeah. <laughs> he was being very Alan Cumming. He was, yes. Um, in fact, actually, I, I did sort of question why that character was there for a lot of the film being outrageously camp. But um, he does have a moment at the end of the film which I felt completely justified his presence. It was quite a beautiful exactly. little moment. Exactly. And very pertinent for us here in Australia at the moment. Well, this is a good example of a film about, a, you know, it's about an event in 73, but this is a very much a 2017 film. Because mm-hmm. Australia is still in 1973 <laughs> is, is the problem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Margaret yeah. Court's in this as well. Yeah, I hissed when she... Uh, I mean, look, it wasn't her, it was an actor. And I tried to, I tried to yeah. let that pass by, but no, I still hissed. I have yeah. to I have mm. to admit, what was the, the actress was... Her name was Jessica McNamee. She's been in a lot of television stuff here, but I, I couldn't help but notice that her name's McNamee. That's a very big tennis name oh, true. In, tennis, um, yeah. in, in Australia. I don't know whether there's any connection there, mm. but uh, I don't know how she felt about uh, appearing on the international stage as um, Margaret Court, yeah. <laughs> her, her breakthrough role. But, and, and it wasn't really... Well, it's very hard to present Mar- Margaret Court fav- favourably, let's say, and it wasn't... Uh, they, they, they kept it low-key, but um, it wasn't a particularly favourable uh, depiction of her. I, look, I'm really yeah. curious to know what you both think, because I went into this film, because I've known the story from the documentary, and I think we covered the documentary on Plato's Cave way back in the day, and we all really liked it, and I'd never heard of the I story. Okay. Yeah, yeah Ac- Acme did a short run of it from oh, memory. That's pre-me. Yeah, I think mm. it's pre-both of you, maybe, yeah. Oh. Uh, sorry, yeah, pre <laughs> the, the before <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
and and my concern going in was it was going to be a kind of broad, wacky comedy about Bobby Riggs's antics because he was a very large than life showman. I mean, look, he was a bit of a, a Trumpian figure. He was a big showman who made a big deal out of being a you know proudly called himself a male chauvinist pig, mm-hmm. and um, you know his antics off the court and on the court were kind of at a very basic level quite entertaining, and um, even if they were ridiculous and, and highly offensive. So I was, I was worried the film was going to be simplistic along that level, and I was really pleasantly surprised, I think, by the, the, the degree of nuance in this film. I thought it was actually quite a sophisticated... For a start, it's more about Billie Jean King's story, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's in many ways you could call this a queer film because it's about her discovering an aspect of herself that she hadn't identified before. And I think it um, puts a lot of the the behaviour and attitudes of the era into into context in a way that isn't sort of ridiculously over the over the top. I mean, it is dealing with sexual politics, but the film constantly reminds us that even though Billie Jean King is making advances in women's tennis and the um and the way women are respected in general in society, the film is full of this kind of very um, subtle casual sexism. Like mm-hmm. it, it doesn't stop reminding us that there's only so far that this story took the gender yep. politics and, and just how ingrained this attitude was in society, that Bobby Riggs wasn't, was just an expression of what existed. He wasn't necessarily the arch-evil enemy of women himself. He was the court jester. He was the court jester. Mm. Well, he also seemed to be playing it up to the nth degree in order just to, uh, to somehow... Uh, sate his own desires as a gambler to somehow be, it, it, his that he's a, uh, has an addiction is made quite apparent throughout the, the yes. film I mean he's made to be quite a pathetic character and I mean that in terms of actually having some pathos attached to what actually motivates him yeah he's, he's not a villain is he the, the film he's, actually attempts to show us maybe where he's coming from yeah he, he's I mean Steve Carell can play very broad but I think he's actually really wonderful here he's he's very well cast and he, he gives gives us quite ludicrous character this this fool um some real shades of of gray we do feel a little bit for him even while he's being abominable um with an enormous audience i mean what was the the, the figure that was quoted that attended this tennis match inside some sort of enormous football stadium or something but then like a that, tv yeah. audience in the millions yes, i think yes, i mean yes, it was yes. just to try to get my head around how this thing snowballed into something mm-hmm. that people in their millions tuned into with so much at stake, even though... Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, estimated 90 million people yeah, around no, the world I mean, watched it's, this it's game. almost impossible to wrap my head around yeah. that. I mean, who... What sort of viewing figures for any sport appro- approximate that these days? I mean, it's... I, I, I struggled to grasp the full magnitude of what was at stake in this, but I... Uh, in this this true event being dramatised, but I really enjoyed the the journey. Actually, I thought both Emma Stone and Steve Carell were wonderful. The side characters too, mm. or were even if Alan Cumming was Alan Cumming coming along <laughs> <Yeah>. throughout. <laughs> I mean, Elizabeth Shue, and I, I can't remember the last time I saw her, but as the mm. the the woman who actually is, it is revealed had largely propped up Bobby Riggs. Um, you know the thing that ironically, she, yeah, ironically <laughs> enough, um, mind you, she did seem to have a pretty palatial uh, home. That, yeah, um, she know. did say she bankrolled him for yeah. a number of years. So yeah, I think yeah. she was actually royalty. I think that that character was somebody insanely wealthy. Yeah, she certainly seemed From, insanely um, yeah. wealthy. I mean, imagine being so insanely wealthy you can pour scorn on your spouse when mysteriously he produces a Rolls Royce. <laughs> oh God, get out! Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, You're gambling again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but winning. I actually quite like that scene where he um, turns up at a, a gambling support group and, and hectors everybody there for being lousy gamblers. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some, there is some nice comedy in this. And it did actually make him seem a more realistic character. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, so we, we kind of got a sense of a, a man who was past his prime and he's been shunted into a kind of white-collar desk job and he doesn't feel listened to, he doesn't feel r- respected. The film is not kind of giving him a free pass on this, but it's attempting to make us understand where his resentment towards women has come from. Yeah. And then his wife is a real larger-than-life figure who's very... I don't want to say domineering, but the film does show that he he's feeling powerless and, and weak around her, and he's channeled that into this kind of I don't want to say misogyny because it's more mm. it's more extreme chauvinism, really. Mm. Um, but and, and I think those shades of grey are nice. It's not letting him off the hook for being a boorish dick, but mm. it, it, it's so it's not excusing him, but it's trying to explain where he's coming from. But again, at the same time, she's presented as this overwhelming character, but she's not a villain either. I mean, she's not depicted monstrously. Uh, at all, uh, she's she's a decently rounded figure in this film. If, if anything, I think the villain felt like um, Kramer, who was yeah. um, the Bill mm. Pullman character. Yes, he was. He was more of the the villainous type. Well, he's the know. establishment. He's and the, the establishment, establishment is exactly. explicitly sexist. Yeah, yep. uh, exactly. he, and he on presents the himself yeah. as being reasonable and softly huh. spoken, and yeah. that's really nice that they did that. Yeah, it was an excellent performance because I just wanted to strangle him throughout. I still reserved my hissing for Margaret Court, but um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I mean he was he was wonderfully obnoxious and, and his little coterie of of boy men pals who just drank with him, his little drinking buddies, they were all agreeably obnoxious. The, the only thing I, I felt this film fell down a little was a, a bit of an underexplored relationship between father and son. Bobby Riggs had this this peculiar mm. uh, relationship. Um, yes. Where I mean, he turns up at his son's place, we gather that they have a little bit of friction between them. That dad's a bit of a disappointment, but the that, son that felt like some stuff might have fell on the cutting room floor with that for it, some it reason. Did have that feel? Yeah, didn't, yeah, it didn't it? quite yeah. go mm. anywhere strong enough to yes. merit mm-hmm. it even being there. Really, mm. um, there was a bit. Uh, I, I found. Um, uh, Growing, I, I really liked women's tennis when I was younger, and you know, Hannah Madlakova was my, you know, the, my star. Um, I knew of Billie Jean King; she was a little bit before my time, but I never, I didn't know of Bobby Riggs, and I hadn't seen this the documentary. So the only thing with this film, it didn't, it, it, it kind of set up Billie Jean King, even if you didn't know her. But I didn't feel it really set up a Bobby Riggs until they they started talking about. Um, getting that Battle of the Sexes match underway, I didn't realise he was a Wimbledon champion. So um, I think there was a little bit of presumption in the storytelling there that they didn't really communicate, unfortunately. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, but that's a small thing. I mean, I went away afterwards and looked him up as well and got a bit more of an idea about him. But I did like that um, her romance and that sort of, you know, coming into her sexuality and uh, how they did it through haircuts. <laughs> I thought that was really sweet. That was lovely. Yeah. It was actually quite a romantic film. Yeah. In, like sincerely, sincerely romantic. And, and they do that thing where the two women are sort of meeting for the first time. It, it's Marilyn who's doing her hair. And, you know, the sound kind of disappears. And, and the really lovely orchestral score, which is in this film, which is quite mm. surprisingly strong, sort of lifts. And, again, they go into close-ups and it's this incredibly kind of intimate, intimate 
personal moments where the public space, the public cinematic space has kind of vanished. And um, They do it a couple of times. They, do they it even a few return times. to it. Yeah, which I think is really nice. So it kind of reminds you, it's like this thematic thing that comes back and shows their connection, which was very, very sweet as well. And that was the moment I started to really love the film when they first did that. And I realised yeah. there's going to be more depth to this than I, than I, than I had thought. And I was really grateful for that. Um, and I also loved all the stuff with Billie Jean King's husband. Yes. Because mm. the film could have taken a very obvious way of dealing with him as a character. And, and to its credit, it really didn't. Mm. Well, he turned out to be a very nuanced individual as well. And perhaps mm. that's true to life. Of course, at the end of the film, we're going to be treated to a little, where are they now? What, <laughs> you know, what became of them all? And, and so it perhaps accords all with historical record. But it was nice to see a nuanced, um, a good guy opposed to all the the wretched chauvinistic pigs running tennis who we who were most of the rest of the male cast of the film uh, aside of course from the two camp uh, helpers <laughs> to the the women's tennis team the costume yeah. guys yeah the cost- <laughs> yes the costumiers <laughs> Uh, I enjoyed the tennis in this film as well. Yeah. I yeah. did Actually, as well. Really well choreographed. I, I did, did not as expect well. that. Yeah, there were a couple of actual tennis players who did those scenes, and I think that um, it kind of reminded me of the way that Little Miss Sunshine built up to that um, that presentation of the the, 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 the girls the girls pageant <laughs> at the end. It had quite a good momentum across that pageant. Had a good momentum, and this the tennis match had a good momentum because that it's kind of a bit hard to make tennis cinematic in some ways or to to not let that moment fall flat on well, its what, face. What's a great tennis movie? Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I can think of um, uh, Strangers on a Train has, <laughs> uh, has some very key tennis action in it. That's the only film that comes to mind. I can think of Match Point, but I don't know. Oh, if there was, a, was there any actual yeah. tennis in there? Oh, it must have been a little bit. There's I can't a, remember. But I, I, don't think it was pl- I don't think they shot those scenes so you're invested in the yeah. tennis as such. But it really yeah. had but The that tennis sequences are exciting in this. And yeah, they really are. And it had a uh, 1970s feel to the tennis because tennis is a very different game now to what was played then and they managed to replicate that. And even that inherent sexism in sport in the 70s that came well it's still around but that um, came out in this film I think it, it really felt like that 70s vibe it took me back to summers watching commentar- um, commentators commentary around the tennis specifically around the tennis for me um, and it just it all came back to me like just this flood so I think they really hit the you know hit the nail on the, the head the colour palette too of the film yeah. is spot on it really evoked the 70s very well and the grain in the image too it just it, it nailed it and Sarah Silverman, she's fantastic. Yes, <laughs> yes, always happy to see Sarah Silverman uh, in anything. I love her doing not a dramatic role. Well, it was a dramatic role. I mean, she, she's very entertaining in this, but she wasn't playing it for laughs. So, um, yeah, I could, I could have happily seen more Sarah Silverman. She's a, a great performer. Yeah, really pleasantly surprised by this film. Yeah, me too. I'm taking it. You, you yeah. were both the same. Yeah, yep. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, one of the, one of the surprises of this year is uh, Battle of the Sexes, which is screening everywhere at the moment. You're listening to Plato's Cave. You're on 3 Triple R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Now, from Thursday the 12th to Sunday the 15th of October, the Alliance Francais Classic Film Festival will be holding a Jean-Paul Belmondo retrospective at the Astor Theatre in tribute to the great French actor who turned 84 earlier this year. 
Uh, Belmondo is probably most famous for his lead role in the 1960 French New Wave classic Breathless. Uh, he was an international star throughout the 1960s, 70s and 80s. I mean, he did continue to work in the 90s and over the last decade as well, but the 60s, 70s and 80s, he was, he was huge. Now, Belmondo did three films with French film noir maestro Jean-Pierre Melville, two of which are screening in this retrospective, one of which we're going to discuss now. Mm. Le Doulot is a 1963, we think, a film written and directed by <laughs> Melville, adapted from a novel of the same name. Belmondo stars as Cillian, a disreputable petty criminal, who, as he gets tangled up in the film's dense story of murder, double crossings, false accusations and betrayal, may or may not be a police informer. Mm, may or may not. What a, what a pleasure to have an excuse to talk about a Jean-Pierre <laughs> Melville film. Well, he's, yes, he's one of those um, amazing French directors of that time that ilk who managed to take uh, American forms and make them uh, incredibly French. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I always forget that his films yeah. were in the 60s and early 70s because they all feel like they came from the 1940s but with a yeah. lot more sex and violence. And jazz. And, and jazz. jazz. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, you know, like Jacques Demy, you know, with the, mm. the musical form, this is just noir, noir and more noir. It's American noir but it's so French. Um, it's it's trench coats and fedoras. It's lots and lots of lamps and lamplight and, uh, you know, uh, long shadows and people knocking lights that swing and cast great shadows across the walls when someone's being had, you know, been shot or something like that and uh, a lot of great jazz bars with heaps of smoking. So uh, it's just, you know, it's it, it seeps noir from every frame. Well, noir is always, you know, there's so many distinguishing elements of noir, but one of them is the use of shadows and symbolisms. Mm. And like the first opening, the five minutes of, opening five minutes of this film, it's an unusual film because you kind of have two protagonists. Belmondo plays one of them, the other one is played by Serge Rigiani, who plays Maurice Fagel, who is who is another low life criminal in their paths cross throughout the film and then within the first five minutes you know Maurice looks at a, at a mirror and it's a fractured image of his face and then <laughs> yes. he sees a mask on the wall and it's just this gorgeous beautiful symbolism of fractured identities and duplicitness and you know people coming out of shadows and their face concealed and I'm, I was just in heaven watching this and, film. And twisty turny, turny double crossy you know in on itself. Oh I lost track of what the hell was going on Oh it's like um, the big sleep for example yeah. you know you just uh, I don't know what's going on in that movie or that book, but I love them both. Well, no, 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 I mean, The Big Sleep's famous for the writer and the actors and the director also not knowing what the yeah. hell was going on. <laughs> I think this, this film makes sense, but... Um, yeah, <laughs> But you're yes. not sure. No, I think so. The, look, the only, the only criticism I would say is there is one really odd extended sequence in the middle at a police station where it's just information and exposition overload. It's a yeah. really strange, talky scene that seems to go on forever. <laughs> once everything leading up to that is great and once you move on after that is great, but boy. Well, there's also that, that, that one quite brutal scene of, of misogynist violence that's, that's, that mm. I was struck by. I, I think I had seen this film once before mm -hmm. long ago, but I'd really forgotten it. I kept having moments throughout it. Um, 
have I, have I actually seen this before? Or have I just am I so familiar with many of these tropes that I think I may have seen this before without actually having seen it? I'm still not sure. But whether I had seen it before or not, that particular sequence, and I don't want to talk too much about mm. it because it's a bit of a spoiler. But it is a shocking sequence. But it is, it is yeah, it's shock. really shocking. Yeah. It's it's quite brutal, and it, it, it's such a jarring shift in the mood of the piece too. Yep. And, um, and sort of the casualness in when they reference it later in the film as well, which yeah. is, well, this is just part of the crime world. Yeah, well then I, I, my mind later on was trying to work back feverishly to see how the the narrative could accommodate those events in the way the narr- uh, those events were being respun by one of the characters to explain whether they were or weren't double-crossing this or that person. It all gets quite labyrinthine, but I was trying to think, but then how do you actually ethically accommodate that scene? Sequence, which is so so mean. Mm. It's really mean. There's, uh, violence isn't meted out to any man as brutally in this film as it is to that uh-huh. woman. It's interesting because there was. It seems like a, a presentation of um, underworld or overworld espionage masculinity of that time. It's very much like the um, Fleming's um, drawing of Bonds, right? The Casino Royale Bonds, which is, you know, here's the type that would meter out that sort of violence against women. And even something like um, Marnie, you know, uh, Hitchcock's Marnie, uh, that scene came to mind, a different type of violence in some way. A weird weird um, combination of savoir-faire and just actual brute um, toxic masculinity. Exactly, yeah, yes. it's, exactly. It's a very weird mix in 2017. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, That bit reminded me of Michael Winterbottom's The Killer Inside Me, which is yeah, one yeah. of the most uh, confronting yeah. films in yep. recent times of, of that sort of violence against women and also yep. a film noir. I mean, that's I think a, it's, that's yes. based on the Jim Thompson, isn't yeah, it? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, Jim Thompson yeah. wrote that exactly. kind of stuff. I think it's exactly. a great film, but it, it, it's shocking. And I, I guess it's really shocking in this film because you don't see it coming. It's, it, it involves Belmondo, our, our kind of gorgeous leading man, and it's just the, the casualness he goes mm. about it. And he is at his most gorgeous, actually, in this film. I don't yeah. think he's ever been more beautifully photographed than yeah. in this film. He's got that um, that young, um, youthful look, that sort of doe-eyed, youthful look, yet he's got that, his boxer's nose, yeah. you know, which just Amazing makes him nose. so... <laughs> it, it, apparently he was a boxer, so right. he actually did... I don't think his nose was quite like that when he started out, um, you know, uh, life as an adult but uh changed to that form but somehow that is part of his sex appeal as it often something like that is you know he's uh, and he he plays that role like in comparison to someone like uh Alain Delon who is mm. you know in Le Samurai Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Samurai he um he plays it much more post stony faced whereas Belmondo plays it with this sort of wry smile the whole way through there's a bit of Bogart in him isn't yeah, yeah. yeah. which calls back which kind of harks back to Breathless because there's mm. a great scene in Breathless where he starts to imitate Bogart mm. yeah mm. so you never quite that it's that's a great way of him sort of covering covering his um, intentions as well you never know whether he's he's serious or or not um, but incredibly charismatic. I mean, like you said, Cerise, never been photographed better. I think this, I can see why the, the Alliance Francaise has gone for a Belmondo festival at such, this time I can't too. believe no one's done it yet. It's such a good call. I, I didn't even realise he was still alive and touch wood, mm-hmm. the way things are going in the world today. Um, <laughs> Don't do an impersonation. I'm not going to impersonate him. <laughs> I, I, it would be terrible. So unlike my Jerry Lewis, which was perfect. That was sublime <laughs> and it killed him. <laughs> yes, exactly. Just say. <laughs> 
But we're going to talk about more of these next week, aren't we? Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, we'll, we'll pick another one of the Belmondo films to discuss next week on Plato's Cave. But do look, do put down uh, Le Dulo as a film to check out when it, when it screens in the middle of, of October. Uh, th- there is that confronting scene, but don't let that, that put you off. It's a really striking film. If you like French cinema, if you love film noir, you're going to uh, really love Le Dulo. Three. Triple. listening to the very end of Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R Battle of the Sexes. Oh, I've missed one. Um, my printer didn't work. Uh, Beatrice, <laughs> I'm going to have to remember the details now. Beatrice at dinner is playing exclusively at Cinema Nova, I think courtesy of Roadshow Films. I hope so. Battle <laughs> of the Sexes is on general release courtesy of 20th Century Fox and Ledulo will be screening on the 14th and 15th of October at the Astor Theatre as part of the Alliance Francais Classic Film Festival's presentation of a Jean-Paul Belmondo retrospective. You've been listening to Thomas Caldwell, Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.